Greg, it's so great to see your face. Yours too. Great to be doing a little one-off because we thought there was going to be a bit of a break, you know. We didn't know if we were going to come back with a season three, but here we are with just a little cheeky bonus episode. A little extra treat. And what a treat it is. Greg, I am so excited for this episode because I learned that all of science is essentially answering one of three big questions. Okay. What do you think those are? Um, what are magnets and how do they work? Nobody <laughs> knows. Why is cake so delicious and why can I never stop eating it? This is an essential question for you, for oh, sure. Sorry. sorry, go on. You're okay, so all valid questions, important questions, but at least according to some scientists, the three questions that all of science is trying to answer. One, how and why is the universe? Where did it come from? Ooh, cosmology, yeah. Yeah, like astrophysics. Mm. Number two, how and why is life? Well, how did it begin? How did it begin and, and how is it now, right? Astrobiology. All kinds of biology, biochemistry, all the natural sciences. Yeah, physiology. Okay, wicked, yeah. And the third, the main one that we are concerning ourselves with today, how and why is consciousness. Oh. How are we sentient, thinking, feeling beings? Oh, crikey, that's psychology and neurology and all. Those are the ologies I don't know much about at all. <laughs> and when I say not much, I mean like nothing. Brains are wonderful, but they are just like big squidgy things inside. Wet, squishy, electrified meat. <laughs> Love it. Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> that's also a little bit what I thought about brains before researching and writing this episode. But the main character of today's story made me reconsider and see the brain in a new light. That essentially human brains are so complex and so unique and so special, we know more about outer space than we know about the brain. And our main character for today's episode is a doctor and neurologist who completely upended the way everyone thinks about treating diseases of the brain and the mind, which are two different things. Mm, a few names come to mind, but go on. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll give you a few more hints and then you can have your guess. Give me a clue. Okay, so he seemingly miraculously at one point in his career woke patients up from a state of almost total paralysis. Wow. He was one of the very first to recognize the scientific and medical significance of music and the way music can shape and affect our brains. That's cool. That's really cool. I know. That's one of my favorite parts. Yeah. He explored the effects of drugs and psychedelics by experimenting with them on himself, <laughs> partially to better understand what some of his patients might be going through. Hmm. A, lot, a lot of people did that. Yep. And he put his groundbreaking work into words in the form of 16 wildly popular books that not only demystified these diseases, contributed to the medical science around them, but also helped millions of regular readers around the world make sense of their own experiences of their lives. Was one of those books about a man who mistook his wife for a, I think, a hat. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. It's a very memorable title. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. So today we are going beyond the cover. If you'll see what I did there. Nice. And we're talking about... Oliver Sacks. You got it, my dude. Yeah. You got it. Have you ever read any of Oliver's books? I am willing to admit and be ashamed that no, I haven't. Hey, no shame. No shame at all. They're amazing. I highly recommend them. But I hope that this episode will be an excellent primer for anybody who hasn't read them to really get to grips with Oliver his life and his work. And even though many of us will be familiar with his name because we recognize his books, even if we haven't read them, he was a lot more than what we may just see in the books that he published. We're going to be talking about all of him today, Greg. I'm really excited because I've wanted to know more about Oliver Sacks for such a long time. Well, you got it today, my guy. It's a, This is a true story of a man who couldn't recognize faces. Really? More on that later. A man who regularly forgot his notes for important talks in the cab that he had just taken to get there. Whoops. Classic. Mm. And a man who revolutionized neurology and how we treat mental health forever. Brilliant. But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Oh, we haven't said this for a while. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas and people. I'm Greg Foote. I'm Marin Hunsberger, and for this episode, I am so excited to be telling this story, which means that Greg is coming along for a wild ride. Let's go. Start the engine. Or not the engine, because we're all about electric vehicles. Start the motor. <laughs> Turn over the battery. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greg, it's 1933. We're in northwest London, Cricklewood, to be precise. Have you ever Ooh, actually been, been to Cricklewood? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, nice. Yeah. It's nice. It's pretty. 
Oliver, who we're talking about today, is the youngest of four children born to Jewish parents, and both of his parents are doctors. His mother, Muriel, is actually one of the first ever female surgeons in England. Wow. So he's from, like, a family already. His mum's a trailblazer. And he grows up in a huge extended family of so many other eminent scientists, physicians, other notable individuals. For example, you'll love this, his cousin received the 2005 Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on conflict and cooperation through game theory analysis. Hello, previous episode of Surprisingly Brilliant. Interconnection. Uh, all about game theory. It's called uh, The Way to Win at Everything, if you want to go and listen to that. That episode is so fun. I loved that one. Thanks. But Oliver actually has a favorite uncle, and he calls him Uncle Tungsten, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. His real name is Dave. Oh. <laughs> And Uncle Tungsten is who actually inspires Oliver's love of chemistry when he is a really small child and fosters this sense of the marvelous at everything in the world. Because as a kid, and I love this anecdote from Oliver's childhood, he starts referring to himself and the age he's at as the chemical on the periodic table that corresponds with that number. So when he's 11 years old, he says, I'm sodium. Later in his life, when he's 79, he says, I am gold because 79 is gold. I kind of love that. That's brilliant. I think I'm going to be incorporating that into my birthdays from now on. Okay, I think that makes me rubidium. Oh, great right? birthday. Anyway, go on. Later in his life, Oliver will write, My religion is nature. It's what arouses those feelings of wonder and mysticism and gratitude in me. And that really begins here in his childhood with his family of scientists and creative thinkers that are surrounding him right now. I find nature really spiritual. So, uh, oh my goodness, this is great. Same. There's so much to resonate with in this episode, Greg. You're going to love it. In his autobiography, which is titled On the Move, very appropriately titled, as we'll see, he describes himself as a really independent and sometimes eccentric child. He recalls a particular time that he baked a biscuit for his scoutmaster and used um, concrete powder instead of flour. <laughs> so you might, you might be able to imagine what happened to that scoutmaster's teeth. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and a comment that's relevant to this from a teacher on one of his report cards sums up Oliver not only at this time as a kid, but also throughout the rest of his life really well. And it reads, Sachs will go far if he doesn't go too far. I think that the person of extremes that Oliver was, that would make someone worry that the very propulsive forces within him might actually be reckless and endangering was central to Oliver. There was no kind of middle ground in his personality. That's Rick Burns, and I'll let him introduce himself. My name's Rick Burns. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I've been making films for mainly for public TV in America for the last 30 or more years. And I came to this Oliver Sacks project in a highly unusual way for me. I actually grew up watching Rick's work and his brother Ken Burns' work on PBS, a public television station in America. So I have been a fan for a long time. And his most recent documentary is about Oliver Sacks. It's called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. Oh, neat. I mean, it's amazing to get Rick Burns on the podcast. That's, uh, that's super cool. I had this crazy moment when interviewing him. I was like, am I really talking to Rick Burns? Oh, my God. <laughs> So what, what Rick is referring to there when he, when he says we came to the Oliver Sacks project in a surprising way, in 2015, Oliver actually found out that he only had a few more months to live. And we'll touch on that more later in the show. But Rick and his team got a call and they were asked to come and film Oliver in these last months of his life. Wow. So they'd spent five days with Oliver, 12 hours a day, interviewing him about his life, his work, his mindset, his thoughts, his reflections. So as you can imagine, Rick got a pretty good idea of who Oliver was as a person. Yeah, incredible, incredible. To understand Oliver Sacks is to come very close to an extraordinary creature in the wilderness who has one foot raised to flee as rapidly as he can because he has been he has learned through hard experience that contact can be dangerous and maybe even annihilating. And at the same time, who is desperately eager for connection and warmth and mutuality. And everything about Oliver Sacks came from that central defining disparity. Well, that is a beautiful way to uh, kind of put that dichotomy, that being pulled in two different directions. Gosh. I know. Rick speaks so eloquently about his time with Oliver. We had the best conversation. But with all of this in mind, we are going to zoom back in. It's now 1939. 
Oliver is six years old. And what is happening in Britain in 1939, Greg? Uh, so at the time, carbon, this is, isn't it? Number six, periodic table. <laughs> well done. Um, World War Two is just kicking off. Yep. And I want you to read Oliver's account of what it was like to be a kid at this time. One night, a thousand pound bomb fell into the garden next to ours, but fortunately it failed to explode. All of us, the entire street it seemed, crept away that night. Many of us in our pyjamas, walking as softly as we could. We had no idea if our houses would still be standing in the morning. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, can you imagine? You're six years old and you come that close to death and mortality and yet you escape. You know, how does that kind of like shape your psyche? So Oliver is evacuated at that time from London to escape the Blitz, right? As many children would, like the kids in the, the Narnia books, right? Evacuated out of London into the countryside where it's supposedly safer because the country is experiencing less bombing. And he and his older brother, Michael, are shipped away to a place called Brayfield, which Oliver describes as a hideous boarding school in the Midlands run by a sadistic headmaster whose chief pleasure in life seemed to be beating the bottoms of the boys under his control. That's like out of the frying pan into the fire situation, isn't it? That's awful. Yeah, exactly. And Oliver will later say that he thinks these circumstances did at least something to push his brother, Michael, into psychosis. The trauma for his older brother, Michael, who was five years older, was defining for Michael and defining for Oliver. There's just no question about it. Yeah, so I mean, in London, they had threat, you know, threat of death when you just don't know it's going to happen and the anxiety around that and then of course are then facing all these further threats <laughs> and further anxiety in, in boarding school. It's a lot, a lot to deal with but M- Michael starts to have fantasies, delusions, he believes he might be the messiah, he can't sleep, he has hallucinations but sometimes he has moments of lucidity and in those moments Oliver, his younger brother, he can still see his brother Michael, the person that Michael is is and was. And Oliver says of this, I became terrified of him, for him, of the nightmare which was becoming reality for him. What would happen to Michael? And would something similar happen to me too? And at this crucial moment of development, Oliver, you know, was forced to retreat, retreat into a world that seemed in certain ways safer, a world of thinking and wondering and childhood experimentation with chemistry and a kind of a fascination with where you might find order in what seemed, what was in many ways, a very disordered world. Because how's Oliver supposed to understand that? You know, seeing your older brother, you know, someone who's normally your role model, I guess, stereotypically, follow that that mental path and he can't explain it. So part of him playing and experimenting is probably for him to try to understand the world and get to grips with it to feel some sense of control and and understanding. Hugely. I think a lot of us can really empathize with this. I know I certainly can. You know, when my former partner was going through a life-threatening cancer situation, one of the things, one of the very few things that made me feel better was understanding more about it, learning, teaching myself. So I think we're all searching for certainty and security in a world that is inherently chaotic and as Rick says, disordered. So I think this makes a lot of sense. And this might have been the first time that Oliver came into contact with neurological illness like this. And this very intense, traumatizing shift in his beloved brother's behavior definitely triggered Oliver's interest in the human brain and how we perceive the world around us. He actually later goes on to do pretty extensive work on hallucinations, like what they are, how our brain creates them, where they come from, which I think is really cool. And another thing he'll be seeing is how Michael is being treated for these hallucinations in these various episodes. Yep. Actually, what was that bet then? This is, this is also key, Greg. You hit the nail on the head there. Michael is given a tranquilizer. It's a drug called Largactyl in England. It's called Thorazine in the US. It calms people, but it also makes them lose clarity of the world around them. Michael will say of the time that he was on that drug that it's like being softly killed. Oh, where does the treatment stop somebody being human or take away, you know, what makes them them? Exactly. And this is all occurring to Oliver as he's young and absorbing all of this going on around him. 
And at this point, it's 1943. He and Michael have returned from Brayfield. They're back in London. And Oliver is exploring all of those different ways that he might be able to make sense of the world around him. He's super into chemistry. But he also becomes really interested in literature. In his autobiography, he says, I could enjoy an easy mix of arts and sciences. (laughs) (laughs) Which, same, same. Yeah. But remember who his family is, Greg. The arts are not something that his family can see him going into. Yeah, what would Uncle Tunstan and and Muriel Mum say to that, huh? So when he's 14, it is decided for him, not by him, that he's going to become a physician, just like his parents. This is just like a given. And Oliver thinks that maybe it's the right path for him. He likes science, but he's not sure. He's interested in so many different things. He's jumping around from chemistry to marine biology to literature to photography. And by the time he goes to university, photography has even further triggered his interest in how the human brain works. He wants to figure out how the brain constructs color and depth, how we perceive and make meaning out of the biological input of like light through our rods and cones, and that becomes an image in our brain. I mean, you couldn't find a better part of the art and science Venn diagram crossing over, could you? And so he enrolls at Queen's College in Oxford in 1951 to study physiology and biology. But it turns out Oliver doesn't really like tests. He fails a lot of them. Like a lot of tests, Greg. And that's a thing that lots of people face. Like like doing well in tests isn't necessarily a case of whether you're smart or not smart. It's also a case of whether you can apply yourself to that particular style of test or even the learning yes, for that test. test taking in itself is a skill. But, but Oliver finds that he loves writing essays. He says, I'm very bad at factual exams, yes or no questions, but I can spread my wings with essays. He even wins a really prestigious university prize. It's called the Theodore Williams Scholarship in Human Anatomy by writing an essay for it. Yeah, boy. Which he says he actually wrote when he was a little bit drunk because he had just <laughs> failed his anatomy final. <laughs> Classic student there. So you've got uh, anatomy final, failed it, got a little drunk, wrote an essay, won a super prestigious prize for it. Amazing. And this is honestly my favorite part of this anecdote. Greg, do you know how he spends the 50 pounds that he gets from winning that prize? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm buying a new fountain pen to write more wonderful essays? Ooh, that's a good one. He actually goes to Blackwell's bookshop and buys all 12 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary. Sure. Just some light reading there. He actually cherishes those books for the rest of his life. And even later in his life, he never uses the internet. But sometimes he reads the dictionary before going to bed. Well, it will send you to sleep. <laughs> Learn some new words on the way. But besides his struggles trying to understand what he wants to do in life, getting used to university, there's something else really fundamental that Oliver is struggling with during his university years. Something else that defines a big part of his life and his trajectory in many ways. Something that we will get into right after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And welcome back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and you are joining us during Oliver Sacks' university days at Oxford. And when Rick was talking to Oliver during their interviews at the end of Oliver's life, Oliver wanted to talk to Rick about something that he had kept hidden for most of his life. He really began to want to come to grips publicly with things he had not talked about ever beyond a very small circle of friends. I didn't know when I got the call Oliver Sacks was gay. Nobody knew. I suppose he was gay at a time where, you know, the backlash you would receive um, in all areas of life, uh, you know, led lots of people to decide that it's just not worth saying it beyond that small trusted circle, you know? This is Alan Turing's England, right? Being homosexual is literally a crime that you could have been imprisoned or chemically castrated for. And being gay was only decriminalized in 1967. And the British government only apologized for all of the atrocities that those laws inflicted on gay men for centuries in 2009. Ugh. 
And just a small side note here, it's actually still illegal today to be gay, punishable by law, and in some cases, death in about 71 countries around the world. Which is shocking. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for raising that. Always good to acknowledge what's still going on today. These are not problems of the past. Anyway, because of all of these considerations, Oliver actually stays publicly closeted for almost his entire life. Although, right before leaving for university in 1951, he does come out to his parents. Mm, do we know how that went? Not great. Oh, okay. And this is absolutely heartbreaking. His mother tells him that he's an abomination, that she wishes he had never been born. And obviously, this is completely devastating to Oliver. But still, he doesn't accept, even having heard this from his beloved mother, that there's something wrong with him. And I want you to read this quote, Greg, from his autobiography. I find it difficult to feel that I had a, quote, condition, that my identity could be reduced to a name or a diagnosis. And this is tricky, right? Because his mum is one of the first female surgeons in England. You could be... How could she feel like that? How could she say this was an illness? But that was what society viewed being gay as at the time. And maybe she was actually just more worried, having lost one of her sons, you know, to a mental illness, that she was going to lose the other son to this thing that was being seen as an illness as well. Maybe she was scared. And this idea of losing something, of losing a person, losing humanity in the face of something like a mental illness is something we're going to come back to. So by the time he finishes his studies at university, Greg, Oliver has a lot of baggage for a 20-something-year-old. Yeah. He's escaped the trauma of war, only to then experience violence and trauma in the place that was supposed to be safe. He feels like he's lost a beloved brother, not only to schizophrenia, but also to these really strong medications that kind of rob him of his humanity. He's gay in a society that makes homosexuals feel diseased and unwanted. Plus, he has absolutely no idea what he really wants to do with his life, but he's feeling this immense pressure from his family to become a doctor. Yeah, when you put it like that, oh my word, what a situation to be in over and over and over again. Woof. And the problem, as he puts it, is that he feels that he's more interested in science as an endeavor, about the humans behind the science, rather than the science itself. He says, I had always loved history and even in my boyhood chemical days, wanted to know about the lives and personalities of chemists. The controversies and conflicts that sometimes accompanied new discoveries or theories, I wanted to see how chemistry unfolded as a human enterprise. So what you're saying there is he would have loved this little podcast called Surprisingly Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> I love that for someone, you know, who, who kind of flipped doing history of science because I enjoyed the stories. Exactly that, exactly that. One of us, one of us. Yeah, Mr. Sachs, I'm with you. And Oliver is at this crossroads when his friends leave Oxford for the summer. And he's left behind by himself working in a human nutrition lab on a research project where he quickly realizes that this is not his jam. He says in his autobiography on the move that depressed by this and isolated because all my friends had left the university, I felt myself sinking into a state of quiet, but in some ways agitated despair. Solitude can be helpful, you know, for focus, as some people have discovered, but not when you're not enjoying what you're doing. I know. And I found myself just like my chest aching for Oliver at this point in the story, Greg, because I felt a really similar way as an undergrad. I loved writing and theater, but I also loved science and asking questions that way and like mucking around in the woods. And of course, none of these things are mutually exclusive, as we know. But I often felt at that time like I belonged in neither of those communities, like not with the folks who were just doing the arts or the folks who were just doing the science and straddling that divide felt really lonely sometimes because your heart kind of wants to be equally part of both of them right and it can only have one half of it kind of satisfied by each because they don't have a bridge between them totally and when i was an undergrad and when oliver was at uni there was no community sat in the middle of that venn diagram so he takes a self-care break. He goes to a kibbutz in Israel. Oh, right. He does some manual work. He swims a lot. And that's a habit that he actually keeps for the rest of his life. He heals a little bit emotionally and mentally. He has a little more clarity. It's 1956. And after this, Greg, what do you think he decides to do? Okay, well, if I'm being optimistic, I'm going to say uh, he kind of works out what he wants to do and finds an opportunity to do it and lives happily ever after. Ah, yes, that would be nice. But then we would have no story, Greg. True that. So no, okay. he still sticks to the plan. 
and goes to medical school like his parents want him to. <laughs> ah, okay. But this is the first time he starts to have experiences with patients. And it's when he's working directly with patients that he starts to realize that medicine maybe isn't just, you know, like his experiences in the lab have been. It's not just a matter of taking information from a textbook, applying it to a set of symptoms and treating an illness with some kind of drug. He actually starts to develop the idea that medicine is actually about treating people not diseases. And that's why he's interested in, right? He's interested in the people and the stories of the people. So this is getting more individualistic, which is right up his street. Exactly. And I want you to read what he has to say about this. Seeing patients, listening to them, trying to enter or at least imagine their experiences and predicaments, feeling concerned for them, taking responsibility for them. It was all quite new to me. Patients were real, often passionate individuals with real problems and sometimes choices of an often agonising sort. It was not just a question of diagnosis and treatment. Much graver questions could present themselves. Questions about the quality of life and whether life was even worth living in some circumstances. That feels like he's not just seeing, you know, a patient as just, oh, I've got this pain or I've got this question. He's actually seeing them as, as, as people, as we've said, but thinking much more deeply about what could be impacting their thoughts and what's brought them there. And soon after graduating from med school, he feels compelled to leave the UK. He was escaping England, escaping homophobia, escaping his mother's crushed abomination of her son. But he also wants to leave to escape this excruciating pain of witnessing, as he puts it, the tragic and hopeless mismanagement of his brother. Also, there are too many Saks doctors in England. So on his 27th birthday, because of all of this, as a freshly minted doctor, he moves to the United States for good. And the period from 1960 till especially the mid-late 1960s, was really that period during which he could have gone too far. Drug taking in San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, motorcycle riding in this kind of compulsive, propulsive way where he would do 36-hour motorcycle rides from San Francisco or Los Angeles to the Grand Canyon and backstopping only for gas on speed. His drug of choice was speed. Oh my goodness, I, this doesn't pick up on a podcast, but my jaw is like gaping. I was going to be like, what a badass. But then when you were like, yeah, he was on speed, I was like, what? He knows about the dangers, but you know, he wants a bit of like a challenge and a, and a boost as well. Is one of his books, is it his autobiography where there's him and a motorbike on the front? I think that one is on the move, as we said, very mm. appropriate to his whole life. And I'm guessing that being gay in San Francisco at that time around other people who were openly gay must have been completely liberating for him having come from UK where it was illegal. Interesting that you say that. Yes, it's definitely more welcoming. Uh, it's more normal to be gay. It's not quite so strange. But Oliver still really struggles with this part of himself, maybe partly because of the way his family reacted. And San Francisco was also a pretty welcoming place for drugs. And Oliver approaches drug use somewhat from a scientific angle <laughs> part of him figures like what better way to understand how they work than to test those drugs on yourself do not try this at home is my disclaimer also a study of one person isn't science but carry on <laughs> and also part of his justification is that he actually thinks these experiences could maybe help him understand what his neurology patients are going through give him altered consciousness a different perspective on how people are perceiving the world and he records everything meticulously in his journal, even his drug trips. I'm going to have you read this one. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. Right, he writes, To my surprise, there was a spider on the wall which said, Hello. It had a voice like Bertrand Russell, that's the mathematician. It asked me a rather technical question as to whether Russell had explored Frege's paradox and we had this conversation. Amazing. So we've got some intellectual <laughs> highs. Pretty great that he recorded them for us. Literally to... intellectual, intellectual highs. Intellectual highs. <laughs> that, is, that is definitely a pun that I intended. But at its core, while we are laughing and it, it is amusing, at its core, this is some pretty serious drug abuse. And it evolves into a problem. And that's why I referenced, you know, when you said San Francisco is a little more open and welcoming. Yes, but he's still struggling with a lot. I think as a result, in part at least, of these wounds that he carried within him. So that the, the sensitivity and the desire to overcome and make connection. Um, he was fleeing himself as well as looking for himself. A combination which most of us can recognize in ourselves in, in certain ways. 
Oliver also describes himself as a man of vehement disposition, with violent enthusiasms and extreme immoderation in all my passions. When it's taken to the extreme of Oliver, as it was, it meant that he was, in literal and also metaphorical ways, he was working at 10,000 RPMs all the time, no in-between. Nothing between a kind of like a terrified, shy reclusiveness and a kind of a roaring embrace of the world. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely hearing and seeing that. Um, I love that from Rick. I think it's very articulate that, you know, he was fleeing himself as well as looking for himself. Um, I think we can see that happening and, and almost justifying one with the other. Definitely using one to do the other in some ways. Mm. But while he's going through this sort of tumultuous inner agony, he's also getting to treat all sorts of patients. And this is where we really see him light up. He starts taking that meticulousness of note-taking and applying it to his patients. And he's getting to help all sorts of people. Like, um, have you ever had the hiccups, Greg? I have. Plenty of times, yes. Oliver actually has one patient who is suffering from a chronic hiccup following a surgery. Six days straight hiccuping, Greg. Nothing has made the hiccups go away. It sounds like torture to me. (laughs) But Oliver suggests trying to solve it with hypnotherapy. And it works. Okay. Maybe gets the muscles to relax. Well, it works somehow, clearly. And after San Francisco, where he gets to start to spread his wings with patient experiences, he moves down to L.A. to do his residency at UCLA. And then he moves to New York in 1965. And he starts a fellowship in neurochemistry and neuropathology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Is that actually dealing with patients, though? Because that sounds like it's yet more lab work you know, research. Yeah, we see here that even though he has discovered that he loves working with patients, he still has this idea in his head that he wants to explore how the brain works and that he can only do that through research, like lab bench research. Except, Greg, he's terrible at lab research. And also, (laughs) he's a little too high a little too much of the time. Oliver was so physically clumsy with himself that the idea that you could, you know, carefully and in a disciplined way do bench science, that's not Oliver. There are so many stories here, Greg, but just a couple of them are that he gets crumbs from one of his hamburger lunches in his brain cell samples. (laughs) Yep, uh, one morning he fails to secure the elastic bands on his bike rack, so his precious notebook, containing months of detailed experimental data, flies off the bike while he's on the Cross Bronx Expressway and gets utterly destroyed in traffic. Oh no, Oliver, mate. And wait for it. He spends 10 months working and working and working on these tiny, fiddly samples of brain tissue, and he just loses them. 10 months. Just lost. They're gone. Gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think lab work is necessary for him. And he was thrown out of the postdoctoral program at Albert Einstein College in the Bronx because he was simply incapable of being a scientist. Yeah, 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 picking that up. So, um... How does he respond to uh, getting kicked out? Well, this is a really pivotal moment in his life. He initially sees this as a failure, right? He gets kicked out Mm. of a program. He takes it really hard. He's been trying to do this lab research. It's been making him really unhappy. He's not well suited to it. His experiments with drugs have also gotten out of hand. And there's a moment which he talks about. New Year's Eve, 1965, 1966, really harrowingly strung out on methamphetamine. His weight, had, which would balloon at other times, had kind of come shockingly down. And he looked at himself and he said to himself, Oliver, you'll be dead in a year if you don't change. So at this crucially low point in his life, seemingly a point of failure, something essential shifts. But before we dive into that, Greg, what do you know about the standard of neurological treatment during the 50s and 60s? I'm guessing it's pretty damn poor. Mm-hmm. I think patients who had these chronic illnesses were essentially institutionalized. We didn't have an easy treatment. We didn't have very much. That's Danielle Ofri, an internal medicine doctor at Bellevue Hospital, which is the oldest public hospital in the United States, by the way. She's also a professor of medicine at NYU, and she's the editor of the Bellevue Literary Room. So she's basically a doctor writer. Does that sound familiar to you, Greg? <laughs> like Mr. Sachs was hoping to be. Exactly. And soon becoming. And Danielle and Oliver actually corresponded as friends and colleagues later in his life, so she got to know him and his work pretty well, too. We had a 
electroconvulsive therapy. We had some medications that were very strong and very nonspecific. And we had surgery that we you know, thankfully no longer use. And we had institutionalization. That's really it. And I think partly the medical profession had so few tools that we really kind of wanted to block it out. These were illnesses that we didn't enjoy treating. We didn't really want to see or deal with. So that's the landscape we're dealing with at this moment in our story. Basically, anyone whose problems are too grave or too strange just sort of get shunted off to the side by the medical community and indeed society in general, just like Oliver is when he gets kicked out of research science. He gets shipped off to this headache clinic in the Bronx where he starts studying and treating patients suffering with migraines, and he finds a certain kinship with these patients. He writes, If migraine patients have a common and legitimate second complaint, besides their migraines, it is that they have not been listened to by physicians. Looked at, investigated, drugged, charged, but not listened to. And Oliver, he listens. So I had to have full biographic detail, along with full sort of biological insight. I mean, this was a point where biology and biography intersected. I mean, in a way, all my patients are at this intersection. I mean, all of us are at this intersection. And that, Greg, was the man himself. That was Oliver Sacks, talking about this practice that he develops over decades during his whole career, something he starts to call the neurology of identity. That's amazing. And what an honor to have his words on our podcast. And like we mentioned before, getting back to working directly with patients, finding the interesting things about them, even in this, you know, seemingly podunk headache clinic, it gives him energy. He's he's coming back to himself in his life. But there's still something missing. Because while he's taking all of these meticulous notes, as he always does, he starts to want to share these stories. So in 1967, after working in the migraine clinic for a year, Oliver goes back to England for a little holiday, and to his own great surprise, he writes a first draft of a book on migraines just in a couple of weeks. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, again, we see that, like, hyper-focus, right? This man of extremes. He says that it spills out of him suddenly. But there's a problem at this point. Because he sends a telegram to his boss back at the migraine clinic, Dr. Friedman, telling Dr. Friedman that he's written this book. How exciting. But Friedman's not happy about this. And he sends a telegram back to Oliver saying, uh, stop. Hold everything. That's not cool. Why? Why is he not happy with him writing the book? Oh, I wonder if it's because he's like telling the stories of the patients in the clinic. Well, when Oliver returns to New York, Friedman calls him presumptuous and tells him that he should never try to publish the book. Otherwise, Friedman, this big, important, powerful man in the field, will make sure that Oliver is never hired as a neurologist anywhere in America ever again. And Friedman forbids him from even being able to take notes home from the hospital. So what does he do? Is that it? Is that the end? Spoiler alert, no, 16 books. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he suppresses his feelings about this for a while, right? I mean, Friedman has threatened him in a pretty big way. But later in his life, he describes these months where he can't, you know, record these patient stories or think about putting them out into the world. He describes those months as the worst of his life. But then he decides he can't bear it any longer. And the impulse to tell these stories, to do what he feels like is his life's purpose of bringing together his love of writing and his love of patience and storytelling, that urge is too strong. So he sneaks into the clinic late at night. He makes copies of his notes by hand. And then he takes leave, goes back to England, and his boss asks him, um... Is this, by any chance, anything to do with the book that we have discussed? (laughs) Oliver says, "Uh, yes, I'm writing the book, and promptly gets fired from the migraine clinic. Oliver Sacks was helplessly himself, to the point of danger. So, you know, if he was interested in something, if he had an insight, if his heart told him to go someplace, he went that place. It didn't matter if you were his boss and went like, you know what, what you're doing is garbage. It's trash and you're stealing my work. Oliver was like, well, I'm so sorry you feel that way. And on he would go. <laughs> Helplessly himself. Love that. 
We should all endeavor to be that, you know. Yes, goals, actual goals. So this is the beginning of Oliver's writing career as we know it, Greg. And I'll tell you some of the most famous and mind-blowing patient stories from that book and the ones that follow. Stories that have stayed in the public imagination for decades. Stories that shaped not only medicine, but also pop culture. And I'll tell you all about those right after this short break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and we're just discussing Oliver Sacks' first foray into published writing. One of the most incredible stories that he's most well-known for, Greg, is one that's described in his book called Awakenings. This was actually made into a movie also. Maybe you've seen it. It stars Robin Williams. No, sadly, I haven't seen that. And I love Robin Williams's uh, films as well. He's incredible, especially in this one. I highly recommend it. So this movie is a a fictionalized version of the true story. Robin Williams plays an Oliver Sacks-like character. But in the book, the real-life Oliver is describing his experience working at Beth Abraham Hospital. And across various wards, there are about 80 patients, and they are survivors of this disease called sleepy sickness. Have you ever heard of that, Greg? Have you ever heard of sleepy sickness? No, but I'm absolutely flummoxed by it because it's not exactly, obviously, you know, coronavirus uh, pandemic sound scientific named after the actual pathogen itself sleepy sickness oh what what they got well they're just a bit sleepy a bit sick let's call it sleepy sickness yeah done right down Greg, you and I are sharing the same brain because as someone who is currently like studying infectious diseases and fascinated by them, I went down a major rabbit hole about this. Sleepy sickness is the colloquial like common name for the disease that is actually called encephalitis lethargica. And it's a disease that attacks the brain and it killed half a million people. But the wildest thing, Greg, is that we don't actually know what causes it. And it killed so many people as well. Exactly. And we still don't know. Some experts think that maybe it's an autoimmune response to inflammation that's left over after initial bacterial or viral infection. It's so interesting. I could talk about it forever. But the point is, <laughs> she could. some of the people who survived sleepy sickness as an illness, they're left in a really bad place. Like many are stuck in what Oliver described as a deeply Parkinsonian state. It's catatonic. They're like frozen in poses, almost like statues. They're not unconscious, but their consciousness is in some way suspended. And by the time Oliver meets them, some of these patients have been in that state for 20 or 30 or even 40 years. Crikey. Is this uh, with your tease at the start of the episode? Is Does he work out how to wake these people up? Aha! I will let Rick answer that one. He figured out a way, at least temporarily, in very complicated and ambiguous ways, to wake them up. Incredible. They could move, they could communicate, they could get up and walk, they could dance, and it turned out they had been there the whole time. That is absolutely bonkers, isn't it? It's actually even more wild because the prevailing medical view at the time is that these folks are stuck like that. Like there is nothing that can be done, but essentially like keeping them alive in the hospital. And it's the nurses who work with those patients at the hospital who tell Oliver that every now and then one of those patients will do something to indicate that they are still in there. And Oliver wants to do something about it. And this also just serves as a reminder to always listen to nurses. Nurses know what's up. They're like the closest to the patient, right? They spend the most time with them. Yeah. So how does he do it, Greg? How does he wake the walking dead? Well, a new drug has just been discovered that helps treat Parkinson's patients. It's called L-DOPA. And L-DOPA essentially provides more dopamine to the brain, and this decreases the severity of some of the neurological symptoms of Parkinson's, like tremors. And Oliver, in true out-of-the-box Oliver-style, thinks, well, okay, no one thinks we can do anything about these sleepy sickness patients. Some of their issues, like stiffness, are similar to Parkinson's. 
What do you think will happen if I give these guys some L-dope? Uh, their frozen faces melted, smiles appeared, eyes started to, to look around and get bright and twinkle, unused voices appeared, uh, unused muscles started to work. Just think about that for those people. Also for the nurses and those around them. Sachs had only been looking at them for a year and a half, but how long have they been in this like catatonic state the whole time? Decades. Frustrated, potentially, you know, awake on the inside, wanting people, like not being able to communicate. And then along comes this guy, spends some time with them, gets to know them, listens to the nurses and boom, they can function again. That's phenomenal. But there's a problem. And I'm going to have you read this from On The Move, Greg. But then almost all of them ran into trouble, developing not only specific side effects of L-DOPA, but certain general patterns of trouble too. Some of the patients would react differently to the drug each time we tried it. I tried altering the doses, titrating them carefully, but this no longer worked. The system now seemed to have a dynamic of its own. There seemed to be, with many of the patients, nothing between too much L-DOPA and too little. So at this point, Oliver is having to contend with a huge sense of guilt. His patients have started to develop other symptoms, ranging from involuntary muscle tics to this overwhelming sense of despair. They've been given their consciousness back, but they're not feeling so great. And he starts to ask himself if the drug was maybe the right thing to do? Like, did he just liberate these patients from their catatonic state only to throw them into some sort of torment that maybe was worse than the trance? So hard to try to judge that, isn't it? Really, really complicated questions that we see as a thread throughout Oliver's career and his life. So what does he do? He books a holiday. He goes home to London. And he decides to write these things down. Again, he feels like he can't help it. They just come out. He writes about his experiences with these patients and appropriately calls the resulting book Awakenings. It almost feels like this is his therapy, you know, writing these things out. That's such a good point. And I think it did help him contend with all his feelings, but he still has a really immense feeling of guilt about these patients and their stories in particular that doesn't leave him and he almost decides not to publish this book at all. And could it be argued that's the right thing to do? Like, obviously, the question I've wanted to ask all the way through is, is it okay? Is it ethical to publish these case files of your patients, even if you're not disclosing their personal information? Well, Greg, his patients end up being the ones who convince him to publish the book. Ah. They tell him that they need to have their story told, that they have felt neglected by society, by the medical establishment for decades. And so he needs to tell their story for them. They want him to. That's kind of cool. I know. I love that part of the story. So he finishes it. He finishes the book. And when it comes out, something really interesting happens. Awakenings is awarded the 1974 Hawthornden Prize, which is like this really fancy award for, quote unquote, imaginative literature. Factual literature, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I would call a compilation of neurological cases, but OK. And again, he's sort of like questioning, does this have any scientific merit? Because there's no murmur from his medical colleagues about this. No medical journals review it, even though it's this treasure trove of clinical detail, right? Yeah, that's kind of surprising. Do they feel like he might have kind of like stolen their thunder or are they kind of like, you know, peed off with him or I, I don't know. Does it pass them by? I think they don't know what to do with it. I think nothing like this had been done before. That clinical details had been recorded in such a compelling, compassionate, empathetic way that the world felt like it was art. So he's a little freaked out about whether or not it's like science or valuable to the scientific world until he gets a letter from this Russian doctor that Oliver reveres as a founder of neuropsychology. His name is Alexander Luria, and he writes Oliver a letter that says, I was ever conscious and sure that a good clinical description of cases plays a leading role in medicine, especially in neurology and psychiatry. Unfortunately, the ability to describe, which was so common to to the great neurologists and psychiatrists of the 19th century is lost now. Perhaps because of the basic mistake that mechanical and electrical devices can replace the study of personality. Your excellent book shows that the important tradition of clinical case studies can be revived and with great success. 
Yay! He gets praise from an important person in his life. Yeah, finally he gets some kind of affirmation on the way that he's combining the arts and the sciences, that this is valuable. This isn't just like for funsies on the side. This has a purpose. And after Awakenings comes out, Greg, his published work really starts to take off. He starts to really become known for being an author. Maybe his best known work, Greg, you recognize it at the top of the show. The man who mistook his wife for a hat. Yep, very catchy (laughs) title. That one sold millions of copies around the world because people really engaged with the way that he wrote about them. But the inherent nature of the method that he uses to write these stories is also one of the downfalls academically. And here's Danielle, that writer-doctor friend of Oliver's. There are many who viewed Oliver's approach somewhat disdainfully by saying, listen, When you take an N of one, that's great for that one patient, but that's not generalizable. And our goal is to not just help that person, but help the whole population. And it's fine for you to spend, you know, six months talking to one patient. That's great. But we've got, you know, hundreds of patients to take care of. And, you know, no one else has that luxury of taking those hours. And so it's great, but it doesn't really help other patients. Yeah, that's a really good point. But then on the flip side, you know, he's offering a level of detail that you can't get if you need to speak to and collect data from lots of different patients at once. Absolutely. There are strengths and weaknesses. And I think this is a really great point to, you know, point out the very valid criticisms of Oliver's work. We're talking about how he he introduced this brand new way of thinking about patients and medicine and talking about it to the world. But there's kind of always this question of, are we glorifying these diseases? Are we sensationalizing them for profit? Are we sort of ogling at these people who are different from us because of, you know, think something that's wrong with them, question mark? Mm-hmm. Good points. There's also always the question of, to what extent is his writing a distortion of reality? Right? Like, is what Oliver Sacks writes about these patients true? And I asked Rick about this. I said, okay, how, how much can we trust these works from Oliver? And he said, aside from like the mountains and mountains and mountains of physical evidence that we have, right, in his notes, in his journals, in his data collection, personal testimonials from the patients that corroborate his writings. The real question at all of this, I loved that Rick, you know, turned it back on me in this way, is that to what extent is any story? no matter how nonfiction it is, still just a construction. Yeah. To what extent can we trust any story? I was thinking that any story is given by a storyteller who has made conscious decisions as to what to include and what to take out. Uh, and that includes when you're writing someone's case notes. You know, it's, it's what stands out to you and you have to trust the experience of the, of the practitioner taking those notes. Um, and, you know, Oliver was pulling those notes together into particular thoughts and scenes for his books. Like we love to talk about on this podcast, Greg, every person's individual experience of life is biased because we are seeing it from our own perspective. So yeah, okay, the way Oliver writes something down is biased, but that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that we have to ask ourselves what true means. So a lot of these fundamental questions about Oliver's work and is a detailed analysis of one patient really that helpful for all of us in the medical field, really valid things that people have critiqued Oliver for. But other people see it as big strengths. One doesn't counteract the other. The fact that his methods aren't generalizable, that doesn't matter. There's still interesting methods. And I think we have things to learn. And how great is it that we have people like Dr. Sachs who spend a year with one patient and we have doctors who run multicenter clinical trials. We, we do need both. And so one does not obviate the other. Also, how great is it that there is somebody medically trained sharing that, albeit one case study, you know, with the wider world? Otherwise, it would always just be in confidential case studies. You are lessening the stigma and raising the awareness of these different mental you know, situations that people are tackling. And not only that, but it also demystifies the doctor figure a bit, right? By having himself in the story as a character in his books that we can relate to, he humanizes the doctor. He reveals medicine as this human endeavor by humans, on humans, for humans. And actually, it's really interesting. It's not until the 90s, after the Awakenings movie comes out, that the medical community starts to give him awards, titles, invitations to lecture, etc., which I think is really interesting because it speaks a lot to like the way pop culture shapes reputation, not only, like 
Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> and, and not only social understanding, but like, you know, technical understanding of things. Like people needed to see for it to be real to them. Yep. <laughs> Good point. So after awakenings, Oliver continues to treat patients struggling with all kinds of symptoms and conditions. He's taking copious and meticulous notes as he goes. And here's where we come back to the man who mistook his wife for a hat. It's a collection of different case studies, but the titular character is Dr. P. He's a music teacher, and his brain loses the ability to process the information his eyes are taking in. It comes back to the very beginning, Oliver's interest in photography, Greg, right? How does our brain make meaning of what's coming in through our eyeballs? And doctors find nothing wrong with Dr. P's eyes, so it's clearly an issue with his brain. And he comes to Oliver Sacks, and here's what Oliver writes about Dr. P. He appeared to have decided that the examination was over and started to look round for his hat. He reached out his hand and took hold of his wife's head, tried to lift it off and to put it on. He had apparently mistaken his wife for a hat. His wife looked as if she was used to such things. It kind of sounds like absolutely impossible that someone would be able to mistake those two things for each other, Greg. But this is a real condition. It's called visual agnosia. And it's where the visual processing centers of the brain are either damaged or they're disconnected from the rest of the brain, right? His eyes are taking in the information, but his brain can't make meaning of it. Wow. 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 It's our brains are so complicated. There is so it amazes me that we, you know, function at all. Can we all just take a moment, like, despite our kind of mental capabilities, just to like applaud <laughs> our brains and indeed our attached bodies? <laughs> Thank you, Brain. I appreciate all the work you do for me on the daily. <laughs> but what I actually love most about this story is the way that Oliver reacts to Dr. P's condition, the way that he treats him. Dr. P is a musician and a music teacher. And Oliver says to him, I can't tell you what I find wrong with you, but I'll say what I find right. You are a wonderful musician and music is your life. What I would prescribe in a case such as yours is a life which consists entirely of music. Oh, that is so lovely. It's beautiful. And just to intersperse here that Oliver himself was a very musical man. He taught himself how to play the piano later in his life. And he has a whole book that I love. It's one of my favorites called Musicophilia. And it's about how music affects the brain and like shapes it in these crazy, amazing ways. That one I'm definitely going to read. I love music. But I just love this example because it epitomizes the way Oliver treats all of his patients, that we don't necessarily have to think of things like this as having something wrong with us, of being ill, being diseased. And, you know, maybe we don't necessarily fit into this like really neat diagnostic structure that we've imposed on the world, right? Healthy or diseased, sick or not sick. And this is what kind of sickness you have. He had a longtime editor named Kate Edgar who helped him put together almost all of his books. And she just sums up this concept so beautifully that like everything that we take as fact is really just meaning that we've created to impose some kind of structure on a chaotic world. Kate says, not all of the conditions we are thinking of here are diseases. Many are simply variations on being human. Variations on being human. And what a number of variations there are. And yeah, we should totally be um, applauding and celebrating those variations. And even though Dr. P's condition is, you know, pretty unique, it might have been a little less difficult for Oliver to empathize with him and his experience than it would be for, say, you and me, Greg, because Oliver also had a kind of visual agnosia. Is this when you were saying he didn't recognize people's faces? Yes. So what, he couldn't remember whether he'd seen a person before. There's this fantastic example that helps us visualize what this might be like. He basically didn't even recognize his own best friends and colleagues. He could see a face and not know that it was the person that he had been having dinner with. Wow. At one point, Oliver doesn't even recognize himself. And he tells this great story where he's sitting at a cafe in Chelsea Market, sitting at a table outside. He turns and he's looking at his reflection and he's sort of brushing some crumbs out of his beard. And then he says, but I was very puzzled because my reflection was not grooming itself. And I realized that there was a bearded man inside the cafe who was wondering why I was preening <laughs> myself in front of him. <laughs> so he doesn't even recognize his own reflection. It's something to do with the visual processing centers in his brain. So I think that learning how different Oliver himself really was, too, is really central to our story about him and his work, because it 
bleeds into everything that he does in the way that he tells other people's stories. Who you are, your inwardness, can be something which I can understand, at least partially. I can share. I can show you I see you. The relief to Oliver Sacks that that could be done with the Awakenings patients was nothing more or less than the relief of if they can be storied back into the world, I can be storied back into the world. And therefore, this foundational insight based on every experience and every thought he'd ever had, which is we are irreducibly unique in our endowments, physical, neurological, in every way. And we are akin to each other in that uniqueness. So in the same way that earlier in his life, to escape or to deal with the trauma that he had experienced in multiple places, he looked to understand it and to understand the world. In order to ensure that he has a place in it and to understand himself, he is storying other people's issues and conditions back into the world to also do the same with his own. Yes, and for all of us, Greg, all of us who read his work and have been impacted by it, right? If we're all different, then we're all in that way the same, right? He made us all, both his patients and his readers, feel less alone. So now we've come to the end of the story, Greg, and to the end of Oliver's life. Because as we mentioned at the top, he knew that he was going to die for several months before it actually came to pass. But the last 15 years of his life are full of joy. They're the richest in both work and in love. He publishes five books. He completes an autobiography. He writes many other books that are like almost finished and that get published after his death. And he also meets Bill Hayes, who becomes his life partner. And it's with Bill that Oliver feels like he can finally live openly as his full authentic self, which is really exciting. Yeah. How does he know that he doesn't have long left in his life? Well, this is interesting. He feels fine. He's in great health at 81. He's still swimming a mile a day, but he finds out that cancer that had happened earlier in his life has returned. It's metastasized. He only has a, a few months to live. And he, in, in true Oliver fashion, decides to share this experience with the world as well. He publishes a series of essays in the New York Times to give him the chance to write his own final story. Wow. And this is what he says. And I cannot pretend I am without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have been given much and I have given something in return. I have read and traveled and thought and written. I have had an intercourse with the world, the special intercourse of writers and readers. Above all, I've been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. And this in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. Gosh. I almost cry every time I hear him say that, Greg. Yeah, hearing him say that is, is moving. And what I take away from his life and his work that still lingers is that everything, reality, our lives, ourselves, are what we both make and perceive them to be. We construct that meaning in whatever way our brain decides to do that. And that none of us are too different to be loved and understood for who we are. If Oliver can do that with any variety of, you know, unique patients with neurological diseases, none of us is too strange. And the complexities that make us who we are can be strengths that add to our lives, not defects that detract from our lives. And that failure doesn't have to be disastrous. It's just a redirection towards something maybe that is more meant for us. Also, there's a through line through the whole of this about science and art and his love of the two and feeling lonely and separate wherever they weren't crossing. And this really kind of speaks to the interdisciplinarity of everything. And, you know, we know there is no line. You know, we joked about the Venn diagram crossing between the two earlier, but there is no line. There is no distinction. There's art and creativity in science. There's science in art and they both contribute so much to each other. Yes, exactly. I am saying this all the time. I feel like I need this tattooed on my forehead that like essentially science and art are just two different ways of asking the same questions about how the world works. Just like those three big questions you asked, 
at the start of the episode, and they can be tackled by a scientific answer, by an artistic answer, or by something that's both. Yeah. And Oliver was one of the great trailblazers who merged the two to give us this new, beautiful, holistic, human way to think about that last of the big three questions. What is consciousness? And how does it make us who we are? What an episode, Marin Hunsberger. I hope you enjoyed it, Greg. I really did. I can't wait to read his books and I can't wait to learn more about him. Well, if you want to learn more about him, Greg, have I got the resource for you because there was so much about him that we couldn't fit into this episode. But if you, dear listener, want more on Oliver Sacks' life and his work, you can watch Rick Burns' amazing documentary. It's called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. It's available to watch now, streaming free on PBS, and it's available to watch on major platforms as well, like Amazon and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to that, Greg. And thank you so much both to Rick and Danielle for sharing their knowledge and their recollections of their time with Oliver for this episode. This episode was also produced in partnership with HHMI Tangled Bank Studios and executive in charge Sean B. Carroll, executive producer Jared Lipworth, and producer Alex Duckles. Special thanks also to Kate Edgar, Bonnie Lavave, and Lee Howell. And if you enjoyed this, please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think might enjoy this or any of our other two seasons worth of episodes. There are so many that you can catch up on and there are more on their way. So subscribe to catch them. If you've got a story from science history you want us to tell on a future episode or a discovery, an invention you want to know the story behind, you can email us about it. Brilliant at Seeger.com. And if you'd like to get in touch on social, that there is Marin Hunsberger. She goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Instagram and Twitter. And this is Greg Foote, who is also helpfully at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker, and this episode was written by me, Marin Hunsberger. My co-host is Greg Foote, and our producers and writers were Katarina Kropshofer and Sylvia Lazaris. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger and we had support from the Group 9 podcast team. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hatikadur. You can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com and we'll chat to you next time. Bye. Bye.